I'm Rachel Schooler. I'm a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm Sandy Troyer, and I'm a member of Emmanuel Baptist. I'm Jessica Hutchings, and I'm a member of Redemption Church in Oklahoma City. I think being a Graceville family is um, being generous um, with our time and our resources, um, also being hospitable and inviting people um, over and having an open house. My husband and I have been married 50, almost 51 years now, and I can tell you there have been times that, <laughs> that my life has not been grace-filled, but you have to, you may have an explosive moment and, and you may, you know, say things that are harsh to each other and all that, but you have to be willing to say, I am sorry. You know, I, I, uh, I know that wasn't the thing to do and, and you just have to, you just have to make up, you just have to keep on going and, and uh, ask for the Lord's forgiveness and, and know that uh, He forgave you, so you better forgive uh, your husband or your child or your, you know, whoever, you know, that, you know, always remember that you, you've been forgiven, so you must forgive. I grew up in Emmanuel, but I'm at a bilingual church right now, so it's um, a lot of Hispanics and then English speakers, and we're in the south side of Oklahoma City, so it's a little rougher, and I think you see, like, the needs of the community and how the church can, you know, walk alongside those that are around your church. Um, I think that ministering to your neighbors can be more beneficial at times than going across seas to do that. I think there's a need in your own back door, which should be met first. My husband and I are also involved uh, in the Gideon ministry, and uh, we uh, distribute uh, little testaments and Bibles. I think that just uh, just smiling at your cash register person and just uh, interacting and just uh, showing the love of Christ th through your life, just uh, you know, just in the, your, the, the way that you treat your fellow human being, that's, that's, that says, speaks volumes. Well, I'm thankful for the testimony of uh, grandmother, mother, and daughter about a grace-filled family and what that looks like internally inside of the family unit, but also how your family can be grace-filled as you interact with people outside of your family. And that's what we'll talk about today on, on this Mother's Day. I do want to say uh, to mothers in the room, happy Mother's Day. We do celebrate you and give thanks for you and for the love, support, encouragement, provision, protection, uh, all things that mothers do. There's a, it's a laundry list of things that they do each and every day, and so we're grateful for you and for the work that you do. We also know that today, while it's a day of celebration, can also be a day of heartache for some in the room, uh, some who've lost their mother or who've lost a child. Um, those that are longing uh, to be a mother, uh, that, that is yet to happen. And so we, we acknowledge um, you as well today and, and remember you. And so uh, I'm going to pray for our mothers uh, before I begin our, our sermon uh, this morning. And also I'm going to ask that the Lord would be near to those who today is a hard day as well. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the mothers that are in this room. We thank you for the gift of motherhood an ordained role that you put into place uh, from the very beginning of creation. And God, we thank you for the ways that mothers care for, nurture, support, encourage, provide, instruct, walk alongside their children, 
not just when they're young or when they're teenagers, but even into adulthood. And so we, we thank you for mothers. And God, we ask that you would bless the mothers that are in this room today. And God, we pray that you would watch over them, that you would continue to guide and direct them as they continue to serve in that capacity. Father, we also know that while today is a day of celebration set aside to celebrate mothers, we know that there are some in this room that they want to push the fast forward button through today as fast as possible. That they are sad and grieved today because of the loss of their own mother, the loss of a child, the struggle with infertility, an estranged relationship with their children. And we also know that there are some in this room who are involved in foster care and adoption that are both experience both joy and grief because of the difficult circumstances that are, are surrounding each of those families. And so, God, we pray that you'd be near to those who today is hard, that you would comfort them. And, Father, I pray that they would know your presence in a real and tangible way. God, I thank you for the gift of mothers and that mothers provide for us a great picture of what a grace-filled family looks like. And Father, I pray that each of us will ask ourselves this morning, what role am I playing within my family? And am I living as somebody who is grace-filled? That not only that I receive your grace from you, but I, I give grace to those that you've entrusted into my family. And that my family will be grace-filled as it deals with those outside of our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, strangers that we meet. And Father, I pray you'll be glorified in, through our time together in your word this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, what a great day it's been. R recognition of graduates, seeing baptisms. Uh, I hope we don't take for granted the, the beauty of what we get to see each and every week here. And so uh, I'm thankful for all that's taking place. And, and, uh, and so as we talk about a grace-filled family, we're in Colossians chapter 3. I'm not sure if I already told you that. Forgive me if I did. But you're in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14. Listen, we all know what it's like to be dressed for the occasion. So going to prom, you know what to dress like. Easter Sunday, you know what to dress like. Um, you know, if you're going out to do any kind of hunting, you know what you need to wear. I had a situation in which I was not dressed for the occasion. I showed up on a Sunday night worship service in the middle of the summer wearing sandals, shorts, and flip-flops. And you might think to yourself, well, what's the big deal with that? That should be normal. Anybody should be able to wear what they want to wear to the church. That's perfectly fine. But as a staff member who was scheduled to pray in that service, when I showed up, I quickly realized that there was everybody else wearing suits and ties, bow ties, button-up shirts, and I realized it was the Lord's Supper night. <laughs> I was not dressed for the occasion. Found myself finding a replacement to pray on the stage because I wasn't about to step on the stage and pray. Found my replacement and then found myself as a staff member sitting at the very back of the room praying that very few people actually saw me. What we're going to talk about this morning is about putting on the righteousness of Christ in our lives personally. And let me say this to us this morning, church. Putting on the righteousness of Christ is fitting for all occasions. It never, you're never, by putting on the righteousness of Christ, you never find yourself overdressed for an occasion or underdressed for a situation. It's all right every time. 
And so when we talk about putting on the righteousness of Christ and as we talk through it, I can't help but think about what happens if we put on this righteousness of Christ inside of our families, what would happen with our families? And what would happen if our families put on this righteousness of Christ and how we would interact with the world outside of our family? And that's where we'll see this morning. So let's read Colossians chapter three. We're gonna read these three verses together. We'll begin in verse 12 and we'll finish in verse 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one hasn't complained against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity." Now, since we jumped into the middle of a letter, and as we know, we don't read letters in, uh, just in sections. We read them when we get them in completeness. And so let me set the context for us so that we're aware. Paul's writing to the believers, to the church there in Colossae. He's making it known to them uh, of his greeting. He's, he's telling them how thankful he is for them. He says a prayer for them. And then he begins in the end of chapter one, talking about who Christ is and exalting Christ. And then as he finishes that section, he moves in to tell them about the, the doctrines that are being taught that are not true, the false teachers. And he makes, he's bringing awareness to those pieces that you have to be aware of what's being taught and who's teaching them. And then in verse chapter three, he tells them that this is how we're to live as believers. This is what it looks like in the Christian life. And so he tells them, this is what you should put off so we see that in verses five through 11, we should put off things like sexual immorality and impurity and passion, evil desire, covetedness and idolatry. These kind of sinful things that we should put off. He reminds him in verses nine through 11 that who you are in Christ Jesus, a new identity. One of the things I love about baptism is the old life being buried and a new life coming to, to, in Christ. There's a new identity. And so Paul reminds the believers there about their new identity in Jesus. And then he tells them, as new believers, this is what you should put on. These are the clothes that you should be wearing as believers. Now, the context of this is he's writing to a church, to believers there in the area. But we're going to take what he instructs the church there to do to our own personal lives and say, if we put this on in our life and we live within the family that God's placed us in, then when these things begin to happen, we will see God's God's faithful hand upon our lives and what can take place. And we become a grace-filled family. Now, before we talk about uh, these characteristics that are described in the text, I wanna point out that Paul is telling the believers there of their identity. He identifies them as God's chosen one, holy and beloved. God's chosen one comes from how God chose Israel as, as the holy nation, as, as his nation, as his people. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't choose Israel because of how vast in number they were or how powerful they are. The text tells us in Deuteronomy 7, they were the fewest of all people. And it's a reminder, what Paul's reminding the, the, the believers in, uh, in Colossae is this idea that, listen, you weren't chosen by God because of who you are and the works that you have. You were chosen by God because he loves you. 
because of his works and his mercy and his kindness. So the doctrine of election teaches us that God being sovereign over all people, because of his goodness and mercy, chooses to adopt us as his sons and daughters. And our response to his adoption of us is that we respond by faith, by placing our faith and trust in Jesus. And when we receive this incredible gift that comes from God himself through the person of Jesus Christ, when we receive this gift, we should want to put off the old way of life. This is the beauty of salvation, that we're no longer dead in our sins and trespasses, but that he's chosen us to be his people. And as a son and daughter of the king, we want to represent him in all that we do. So why would we not want to put off these old things and put on these new things? The second characteristic or description of, of them is holy. God had set apart Israel for himself. We see this in Leviticus 19.2. He says, speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That when we come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, he sets us apart. He makes us holy and he makes us holy through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, when we say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. And as he resides in us, he's in the business of sanctifying us or making us to be like Jesus, to be holy. In fact, one commentator said, the Holy Spirit provides the power internally to do in you what God is asking of you externally. So it's the, his work that sets us apart. And then the third title that he gives is, he's beloved, Israel, call, Israel was called God's beloved. Second Chronicles 9.8 refers to this when it says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as a king for the, Lord, for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel's establishing them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. Paul's reminding the, the Colossians that you are God's beloved. And because you're God's beloved, you're, you have the privileges and the rights that come with that title. To be beloved is to be a recipient of God's special love. And for us in this room, if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ by putting our faith and trust in him and making him the Lord and Savior of life, we're the recipient of his special love and we become his beloved. This is good news. So why would Paul before he instructs them what to put on, remind them of who they are? I think there's two reasons. One, he was telling them that what once took place in the economy of God in regards to the elect nation of Israel now was, for those, now was true for those who came to faith in Jesus Christ. He was sharing these titles with them. Listen, and the reason why I want to emphasize them today, he was sharing these titles with them so that they might be reminded and encouraged of who they are in Jesus. This is who we are in Jesus when we trust in him. We're chosen, holy, and beloved. And this is good news. The second reason why he shared them with this is he wanted them to be prepared to receive what he was about to tell them that they were to put on. Because righteous, righteous people behave righteously. And so what he was about to instruct them and what they were to put on, he was basically saying this, that if you're God's chosen one, if you are God's holy people, if you are his beloved, then these are the things that should mark your life. And then let's look at them together here. Because as a grace-filled family, we should have these three actions that describe our life. The first is this, a grace-filled family puts on Christ-like virtues. The word put on is the idea of putting on clothes, 
It's, it's like enveloping in. It's, it's, who, uh, it's who we should be. Now, why would I share this in light of the family? Because of this. The family is the arena in which God has commanded and laid out that faith is lived out. When we, when we go back to creation and we see how God created every individual and then put them in a family, he put them in a family because faith was where the, where the, the family was where faith was gonna be passed through. And so if, if your family is the arena in which your faith is lived out, then when you put on these virtues, your husband, your wife, your kids, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, however, however you consider people your family, when they see your life, they should see these things. They should see you dressed in these things. And as you are dressed in these things, they will not only see that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus yourself, they will also see glimpses of God himself by the way that you, you pass these on to other people. So compassionate hearts is number one. <clears throat> the King James um, is, this is the first virtue that we're to put on, compassionate hearts. The King James translates it's bowels of mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not sound very pleasant. Bowels of mercy, but it, but it really gives a truth to what this is. Because where do we often feel our emotion the most? It's in our gut. And so this is a gut level compassion that we extend to those around us. This compassionate heart is genuine in sensitivity. It's a heartfelt sympathy for the needs of other people. Listen, the ancient world was merciless. It was Christians who had compassion. It was Christians who stepped outside the city gates and provided healing, or not healing, but, but care for those that were, that were struck with diseases that nobody else would touch. It's this gut level compassion. And listen, some of the people that we harm the most are the people that are closest to us. And if we're gonna have a grace-filled family, we've gotta be compassionate enough that we are genuinely concerned with those that God's put in our family. Our families have gotta be concerned with those that he puts in our path, that we have compassion on them. That's such a deep level compassion that it begins to move us to action, which takes us to the second part, which is kindness. Kindness. Our human nature lacks kindness. In fact, our human nature often lends ourselves towards harshness in both word and deed. I mean, you guys probably learn more about me preaching because I'm, I just can't help but share things. But here's the deal. Sometimes in my interactions with my family, I'm very sharp and harsh with my words. It's not natural for me to be kind. It's not natural for you to be kind. Because our, our, remember, our old nature is selfish and self-centered. And so when we think about kindness coming into play, it's not just compassion that we feel towards other. Now it becomes acts of kindness. It's these physical acts where we are thoughtful and considerate of other people. Listen, we got all these people now that sit behind keyboards that are just ruthless and mean to all kinds of people. But Christians are to be marked by Kindness. Kindness is about taking initiative to respond to others' needs. Listen, God took initiative in your life to act charitably and benevolently towards you when you were separated from him, when you were an enemy, when you were opposite of who he was. He, he took an act of kindness by sending Jesus to die for you. Yet we struggle sometimes, even in our own families, to be kind to our own family members because they they wronged us or they irritated us or they woke up on the wrong side of the bed. 
But church, we've got to be people who extend kindness by our physical acts, seeking to respond to the needs of other people. The third thing is, is humility. This is a word that didn't exist among the Greeks. In fact, there's really no symbol in their language to, den to denote humility. Part of that is, is because humility was seen as a weakness. But the gospel makes humility one of its chief graces. Why? Because Paul said it in Philippians, his letter to the Philippians, that Christ humbled himself to the point of death. That this is who we are to be is, is humble people. Now listen, humility is not thinking poorly of ourselves. Humility is not one of these things where we say, well, I'm not a very good public speaker or, you know, I, you know, I just don't know how I got that. And we're always talking down upon ourselves. That's not humility. That's false humility. Humility is also not puffing ourselves up to think we're high, more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We talked about that last week. Sometimes generations in the church think their generation is the greatest generation, right? But listen, we're to, be, we're to think of who, our, who we are in light of who God is. Humility is an honest assessment of ourselves. Listen, it's not about self-exaltation or self-love. Those two things are poison to relationships. And if we're to be really honest with ourselves, there's something about humility that we've all learned hard lessons with. When we thought of ourselves greater than we should have, or we were trying to exalt ourselves to a place or a position or, or some sort of power, and God, God stripped us of those things. Listen, humility is this, church. Listen to these words. Humility is a selfless perspective that values others as more important. When your family came together and it, it, it started, husband and wife came together, listen, there was probably some hum, lessons on humility in that relationship. There's just something about getting married that realizes how selfish you really are and how focused in on your own needs are. Then when you have kids, it like cranks it up even more. And you're like, I just wanna watch a football game on a Saturday, right? And you're like, okay, like it really cranks it up. But listen, most of our problems in our family units and in in, in, even with our families with other families and families with neighbors, listen, is because we've, be, we've become concerned about exalting ourselves in the family relationship. Or we've, we've become concerned with loving ourselves in the family relationship more than we love our family. Our families become more about exalting our family and what we can have and what we can do. And church, listen, humility is a virtue that we put on and it is a selfless perception that we put on and we value the needs of other people more. And as a grace-filled family, as one that's showing grace in the family unit and outside of the family unit, is we've got to come to a humble place and a true understanding of who we are. And listen, we... We learn humility at the foot of the cross because when we bow ourselves at the foot of the cross and we realize who God is and who we are and that we can't save ourselves, it self-corrects us. It puts us in the right posture and we put on the garment of humility. Number four, meekness. J. Upton Dixon founded a group of, for submissive people called doormats. These submissive people, that, that was the name of their group called doormats. Here's what it stood for. Dependent organization of really meek and timid souls if there are no objections. Their motto was this, the meek shall inherit the earth if that's okay with everybody else. 
their symbol was a yellow stoplight. I share this funny illustration because so oftentimes we think of meekness and gentleness as weakness. But church, let us be careful not to confuse meekness with weakness. Because meekness is a steel-like strength. They say it's like power under control or strength under control. One of the greatest examples of this is in the Old Testament of Moses. Moses in Numbers 12 was referred to that Moses was very meek, greater than anybody else living at the time. Listen, we know this. When Moses needed to rise up and raise his voice, he did it. When he needed to rise up and lead, he did it. When he needed to be tough, he was. But he had exercised this power under control. And listen, in our families, just because we want to make it, we, we, we've been wronged and we want to make something right and we need to get back at who that is, we've got to learn to practice power under control. I'll share an example uh, about my dad and power under control and I'll also reference it in just a minute at another time. But when I was, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 years old, I can't remember how old I was, I've tried to wipe this memory out of my brain. My dad had a brand new Dodge Dooley, red, brand spanking new. I bet it didn't have 500 miles on it. And I, I convinced him to let me take it hunting. Now, where I came from, we hunted coyotes, coyotes, however you want to say it, with vehicles and dogs. So you would send spotters and we would we'd take a whole section of land and we would put people all around it, send spotters, send a walker through the middle. We'd chase one out, we would drop greyhounds and they would chase them down and they would kill them. So I'm driving and we spotted a coyote and I need to turn around. So when I turned around, I dropped the truck off into the ditch. No big deal, I thought I was fine. I even got out to look before I pulled the car out of the ditch. I'm, this is good, I'm, I'm okay. As soon as I got in and put it into drive, I heard the most awful sound and that was the fender being ripped off of that truck. I thought my life was over. I'm just going to be really honest. I drove home. I immediately left hunting, drove home, dropped the person off who was with me, drove home, walked inside, told my dad what I did. And listen, I'll tell you what, I saw in my dad power and strength under the control because he had every right to lose his ever-loving mind. But he didn't. He just said this, are you okay? And I said, yes. He said, material things can be replaced, but you cannot. Power under control. He didn't flip his lid. He didn't lose his, he didn't lose his mind. He didn't go passive aggressive and move away from me and hide from me. Just power under control. Meekness. And then finally, patience. You know, who irritates us more than the people we spend so much time with? Now, you're going to think to yourself, my family never irritates me. I'm not sure you're telling the truth. But listen, patience. It's about long suffering in the face of insult or injury or being irritated. It literally is focused on putting up with people who irritate you. While at times you may have the right to retaliate, when we choose to be patient instead, it is then that the Holy Spirit increases our endurance. Patience is the opposite side of resentment and revenge. Now listen to this church. Patience is the ability in a situation to have a measured response 
okay? Where you exhibit trust in the Lord and trusting that he will guide and give grace to all people. Patience, a measured response where you exhibit trust in the Lord that he who gives grace to all people will do that thing in this very moment. And listen, now these isolations weren't, or these virtues weren't to be done in isolation. Now listen, you and I can agree, straight up honestly, it's a lot easier to be patient with people if I don't have to be around people. It's a lot easier uh, to show compassion to people when I don't have to see people who need compassion. It's a lot easier to have power under control when those people who test my power are standing in front of me, right? But it was never meant to be lived in isolation. This was, all these things were given by God to be lived in community. In fact, William Barclay says, it's most significant to note that every one of the virtues and graces listed has to do with personal relationships between man and man. The great basic Christian virtues, he goes on to say, are virtues which govern and set the tone of human, of human relationships. Christianity is community. And our family relationships, we need to be people who understand this truth, that we become better Christ followers of Jesus because of Christian community. Meaning this, that God's allowed you to put on these virtues in your family unit so that he can refine you so that you can be better in following him and, and becoming more like him in this process. Now, some of you might say, but my family is what keeps me from putting on these garments. But listen to these words by Kent Hughes. These very things that we think keep us from putting on these garments are the things that make possible their wearing. To help our family be grace-filled, we need to be people who have compassionate hearts, who extend kindness, walk in humility, practice meekness, and exert patience. Number two, a grace-filled family bears with, bears with and forgives one another. Now you'd be thinking, Jeff, you said we got three points. It's four minutes till noon. When's this gonna get over? It goes fast, I promise. There's a funny example. Back when you used to be able to smoke cigarettes and cigars on airplanes, uh, there was a guy who said, I need to smoke a cigar. And this, the flight attendant said, well, you'll have to ask those sitting around you if it's okay if you smoke a cigar. So the flight attendant went to the, to the lady that he was sitting next to and says, do you have a problem with cigars and him smoking a cigar? And this is what she said. I absolutely detest cigars. So the flight attendant spoke to the man, said, you can't sit here, but there was another empty seat. So he went up to the, empty, to the empty seat and asked the man, the flight attendant asked the man, do you mind sitting next to somebody who smokes a cigar? And he was like, I have no problem with the guy smoking a cigar sitting next to me. So as the man was making his way to his new seat on the airplane so he could smoke a cigar, the lady who was his former seatmate leaned over to the flight attendant and said to him, I've been married to that man for 30 years and I still cannot stand the smell of his awful cigars. That's a really funny illustration. But it describes so often what happens in families that we only put up with each other. This, the text tells us that we're to bear with one another. To bear with somebody else is to have a humble attitude, a gentle disposition, and patience. Listen, it means that in the mess of their life, you got to step into it and you got to bear some of the burden. 
That's what makes families so beautiful and wonderful is that there's this commitment that says, hey, we're in this together. We stick together. Our family rules in our house are no hurts, stick together, have fun. That's, that, that's what we do. But I understand that there's gonna be times when hurts happen in our family that we've got to pick each other up and I've got to bear with them. Much like my dad, instead of just putting up with a teenage boy who backed his truck off into a ditch, my dad and mom, they didn't, they didn't just put up with me. They, they bared with me. What can we learn from this situation? Did I have consequences for running my dad's truck off into the ditch? You bet I did. I had to work without getting paid in his company because I was having to pay him back for what happened. I had consequences for my actions, what happened, but they were bearing with me, helping me move forward. And when we wanna talk about these virtues in our life being on display in our life, they come when we have to stay to ourselves. Am I just gonna put up with this or am I gonna bear with this? And so we bear with each other, but listen, you can't just bear with each other without forgiving one another. That's why they're tied together in the text. And listen, forgiveness implies this continual mutual forgiveness of problems and irritations and grievances that occur. Listen, when we forgive, we extend the mercy of Christ that we ourselves have received from him. Forgiveness is commanded by Jesus, but listen, it's only possible by Jesus. He set the example for us. And forgiveness comes when we refuse to retaliate. And listen, we struggle to forgive, myself included. But when we struggle to forgive, church, this is what we gotta do. We've gotta center ourselves and recall the forgiveness that we've received from Jesus Christ himself. And we gotta remind ourselves of his infinite love and forgiving one another. And I wanna say this to you this morning. Listen, our forgiveness doesn't excuse sinful or hurtful actions that have been done to us. Here's what forgiveness does. It allows us to cover their offenses with grace, preserve unity, and prevent bitterness from growing in our hearts. Now, Consequences come when our family or when our, our other families hurt our family, however we wanna put it. Consequences come when our sinful actions happen. It's just the nature of it. But forgiveness can be achieved, both granted and sought and granted, even though consequences will remain. And so when we seek forgiveness from our family and from our family to other families, we go to them and we say things like this, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. I acknowledge and admit what I've done that was wrong and hurtful. I even acknowledge the pain and the, and the, and the hurt that's been caused. In fact, even with our boys, we teach them this. They're small enough. They like to punch each other in the face and shove each other and do all kinds of things. It's totally fine. But we, we've, we've tried to teach this and instill them in this, that when you need to seek forgiveness, you walk up to your brother and you say, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry is not good enough. It's I'm sorry that I punched you in the face. And then you say, I know that that hurt you. And then you do, you do these things. I'm the one that caused that hurt to you and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And listen, that's what seeking forgiveness is about. It's about you owning you, no excuses. Well, if he wouldn't have shoved me in the back, this wouldn't have happened. No, 
You're responsible for what you've done. And in the family unit, we, kids, teenagers, you're in a conversation with your parents or an argument with your parents because you've done something you're not supposed to do. Listen, you own what you did. Parents, if you've messed up, you own what you did in front of your kids because you're modeling what forgiveness looks like and what it means to seek forgiveness. Listen, we're broken people. Nobody in this room, myself included, is perfect. We're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna hurt people. We're gonna irritate people. But we've gotta come together and we've gotta say, this is what it looks like to seek forgiveness. And then on the other side, when you're receiving somebody seeking forgiveness, we've gotta do this. We've gotta grant forgiveness. And let me say this about granting forgiveness. You've gotta acknowledge your pain and anger. And listen, you allow yourself to feel disrespected and hurt. You don't have to apologize in that situation. Well, I'm sorry that I felt this way. No, if you were hurt and you felt pain and you felt anger, you're okay to acknowledge that. Then you be specific about your future expectations. One of the things that our kids, when they were really little, it was always funny to listen to say, you never punch me in the face again. But we're teaching them to set this expectation that this isn't okay, that the line draws here. And so as you grant forgiveness, you acknowledge your pain and your hurt and the feeling of being disrespected. You you, You give specific boundaries that don't let this happen again. And then you give up your right to get even. Now, most family dynamics, this happens. We'll be in an argument with the kids and we'll be having this difficult, not in a family unit, you'll be having an argument with your kids and you'll use things like, we keep having this same problem. We had this two weeks ago. Listen, if you already worked through it two weeks ago, you don't bring it back up today. Or as spouses in our relationship with our spouse, we, we hold these arguments from past arguments and we hold them in our pockets. And then when we have another argument, we're like, yeah, just like the last time this happened. Listen, We have to give up our right to get even when granting forgiveness. We've got to let go of blame and resentment and negativity towards each other. And we've got to communicate that I forgive you. And sometimes you'll be able to reconcile a relationship and at other times it'll never be the same. But just because the relationship won't ever be the same doesn't mean that forgiveness can't be sought and granted. Do we hear that, church? This is what God does with us. And listen, we've got enough problems with the enemies and troubles in the world when we're dealing with the outside world. We don't need to be fighting with our families and within our church families. We've got to be gracious, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And then finally, as the text tells us in verse 14, a grace-filled family is clothed with love. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the belt that holds these clothes on. Listen, you can be kind and not have love. You can have compassion and not have love. But when you have the love of Jesus Christ inside of you and you, you put on the belt of love, these other things will follow suit. Why? Because true Christian love does not seek its own. True Christian love does not seek its own. Love, true Christian love epitomizes the character of God. It fulfills his law and it expresses our love for him in response to him. And I I close with this illustration. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker were both pastors in London. 
On one occasion, Parker commented about the poor condition of the children being admitted to the orphanage that Spurgeon ran. And believe it or not, people took that information and went and told Charles Spurgeon that Joseph Parker was speaking about how bad the orphanage was. Now, can you believe that somebody would twist words? Spurgeon heard this and got up the next Sunday morning in the pulpit and blasted Parker from the stage. So much so that the newspaper took notes about it. It was the talk of the town. So guess where everybody went the next Sunday? They went to Joseph Parker's church to hear what he was going to say to Charles Spurgeon, and this is what he said. I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. This is the Sunday that they usually take up an offering for the orphanage, and I suggest that we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times, and then later that week, there came a knock on Joseph Parker's study, and it was Charles Spurgeon. And this is what Charles Spurgeon said to Joseph Parker. You know, Parker, you've practiced grace on me. Listen to these words. You have not given me what I deserved, but you have given me what I needed. I share this story of Charles Spurgeon because it serves as a reminder of what grace looks like in relationships. Charles reacted to something he thought Parker did. Yet when Parker was given a chance to respond, he responded in grace. And as he said it, You have not given me what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. If our families are going to be grace-filled, then we as believers have to clothe ourselves with compassionate hearts, extend kindness, walk in humility, practice meekness, endure with patience. We have to bear with one another and forgive each other. And we need to clothe ourselves with love. And when we do this, we will not only give people what they need, we will live and show the grace of Jesus Christ to our family and to our community. Let's pray together.